This is New York State of Crime. A true crime podcast exploring New York's most disturbing criminal cases. I'm Peter. I'm Brenna. All right. What what are we doing today? <laughs> this is episode 14. Is it? Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. I seem to have not registered 12 or 13 in my head, so that's well, great. Yeah. Well, I, I forgot to announce 13 as as is typical in the intro of the podcast. I don't actually think anyone cares. No one cares, no. I have a little tidbit for you. Um, Tell me. The New York Times editorial board recently posed a question to the eight mayoral candidates for the New York mayoral race. They said, do you know the median sales price for a home in Brooklyn? I bet they didn't. They didn't. Uh, (laughs) That's it. Um, What would you guess, Peter? (laughs) Median home price in Brooklyn? What, like a brownstone or something? Just or like, a home in Brooklyn. Just a home? Um, I would say it would have to be between like uh, probably like 900000 and and like a million, right? Sean Donovan, who is one of the candidates I, I literally have never heard of, said in Brooklyn, huh? I don't know for sure. I would guess around $100,000. What the fuck? Who, nothing Raymond? is $100,000 in, in the city. Nothing is $100,000. Are you fucking kidding? Anywhere in Anywhere New York ever. until you get really far. Not even like in the near Bronx. No. No, exactly. What uh, the fuck? Raymond J. McGuire, an investment banker, former executive at Citigroup, said something similar to $100,000, according to the New York Times. A fucking banker who should know oh, what oh, money is? he said it's got to be somewhere in the eighty dollars to $90,000 range, Are you not shitting higher. me? Are you shitting me? Like, did you me? just forget a zero there? Eric Adams, Brooklyn Bro president, said he thought it was $550,000. Nah. No, wait, $550,000. Is that the right number? $550,000. Yeah, that's hundred thousand dollars. Hundred thousand. Five hundred fifty. Hundred thousand. No, no. Five hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yes. <laughs> Fuck my brain. Yeah, you um, don't do numbers. It's I'm okay. sorry. Maya Wiley, uh, former counsel to Bill De Blasio, guessed one point eight million. Only Andrew Yang guessed correctly. The number is nine hundred thousand. I would have said. I looked at this before guessing, but I I bet I would have said like eight fifty. Well, it's funny because Andrew Yang spends no time in the city yeah. and moved him and his stupid ass family out to New Paltz for the Panera bread that we're still living in. So I, I don't know how he knows the median home price in Brooklyn. He but probably like, knows the median home price in New Paltz. I bet he fucking does. <laughs> Which, uh, I mean, there's some pretty high priced houses in New Paltz. I bet yeah. the median is 400, 450. In New Paltz, yeah, probably. I mean, Just it's a because so town, many of so them hot. are higher. Yeah. Like you can get it for lower, but I wonder yeah. if I could Google that. Yeah, go for it. Uh, three ninety nine. I'm pretty good. Say it again. Three ninety nine is the median listing home price. All right, not That's not bad. Pretty much exactly what I said. Yeah. I should go into real estate. Yeah, do it. Okay, so that's the um, that's the fun news from New York. Um, I think if you live in the city like us, uh, you'd probably be sick of hearing about these uh, potential mayors. Uh, I sent in my ballot. Uh, make sure you vote if you live in New York City. Yeah, please vote. You can vote by mail. I got my ballot in the uh, through email and printed it out. Sent it out already. Ranked choice voting for the first time. Uh, oh, we will be doing that. So make sure you read the instructions. And you can pick multiple candidates, up to five. Yeah, Brenna had to explain it to me. And I still kind of don't get it. So I, I don't think anyone else is really going to get it. <laughs> 
hopefully it will make it work. I'm really interested to see the outcome. Um, I don't know if there's any other big New York news or any crime news. Peter, what do you think? Uh, I mean, nothing. nothing's really coming to mind right now. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, by yeah. the time people are hearing this, I mean, it's not going to be... <laughs> Well, I think that's good. Let's jump into our case for today. So today I'm going to take you to uh, New York's North Country. Now North we just country. last episode we looked at that map. Where's the North Country? Oh, so that would be immediately the northeast north. So that would be above <laughs> the capital region, mm-hmm. like Lake Champlain adjacent, just like touching Canada. Yeah, touching Canada. Where is Lake Champlain? I actually have no idea. It's on the border between us and uh, Vermont. Right? (laughs) It's Vermont over there. It's not New Hampshire. I don't care, so I can never remember which one is which, but one of those borders us. It was Vermont? Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, Yeah, I guess that's correct. So, yeah, the North Country is a big swath of mostly rural areas of a swath a swath yes swath indeed a swath um (laughs) thank you peter uh it all touches canada or water that is basically canada (laughs) canada water Uh, (laughs) it's the area where if you were in the handmaid's tale this is the woods you'd be running through to make it to canada oh wow um so there's positives to living there i've never been well i don't know that might be a lie i've been to um niagara falls but that's actually western new york so i lied yeah no but i've driven through nope just kidding toronto is where's toronto i'm so bad at canadian no toronto is also western so yeah i've never been to the north country at all have you no yeah so this is a case that's very become very famous from the North Country. We're going to Potsdam, New York. What do you know about Potsdam? Uh, it has the word pot in it. <laughs> uh, so there's a SUNY Potsdam. There is a SUNY that's Potsdam. That's all I knew yeah, about that it. That was my second thing. It's a pretty small town, but it's one of the bigger towns in the North Country. Um, but the one thing that this area does have going for it is it has a lot of colleges in this area. There's actually, I think, five major universities, um, right near Potsdam, including SUNY Potsdam. Um, and there's some other smaller, there's Clarkson University, um, also in Potsdam. So it's a small town, but it has a lot of pull and push in the community, you know, like it, it makes a splash. Um. A splash. Thank you. <laughs> so we're going to Potsdam, New York in 2011. And we're looking at the unsolved murder of Garrett Phillips. Oh, Garrett. Now, this was made very famous by an HBO documentary called Who Killed Garrett Phillips? Directed by Liz Garbus. Remember her? Oh, yeah. Liz Garbus from the uh, uh, Diane Schuler R.I.P. documentary. Yes. So Liz Garbus is a documentary filmmaker who's just very prolific. Um, she made the documentary that we covered in our case on Diane Schuler, the mm-hmm. taconic runway driver. And she also produced this documentary about Garrett Phillips. She's also a director on the recent season of The Handmaid's Tale. Whoa, that's cool because The Handmaid's Tale is based, and we love um, uh, 
what's her name? The blonde girl, Elizabeth, <laughs> Elizabeth Moss. Moss. Yeah. Even though she's a Scientologist. She's not a Scientologist. She is. You oh, know she that? can get fucked. Never mind. <clears throat> That's why everyone thinks it's so funny because she's like playing a character where religion oppresses her, and then she's like, "I am a Scientologist." Uh, that's she's too cute for that. Yeah. Who let that happen? Do you remember when she was in the headache commercial? Yes. I literally saw that recently, and it gave me so many flashbacks. Oh my god. We're way off track here. Um. So yeah, Liz Garbus. Uh, just to mention, is from New York, so that's why she's our girl. Um. She also famously. Uh, not true crime related, but she did a documentary in 2015, What Happened Miss Simone, about Nina Simone, and that won a bunch of awards. Um, so yeah, she's just, she's out there doing it. We should get her on the podcast. <laughs> we love her so much. Uh-huh. She we she also should. went to Brown University. Oh my God. Yeah. I went to RISD and like Brown and RISD are they're friends. basically the same thing. No, Well, no, they're not the same <laughs> I know, thing. I know. They're friends. They're friends. Okay. So Potsdam, New York. It is Monday, the 24th of October in 2011, and we are at 100 Market Street in Potsdam, New York, the North Country Manor Apartments. Now, Marissa Vogel is a young college student. She lives with her boyfriend in this apartment building, and they get off school a little early, and her boyfriend makes dinner. They sit down, and they're watching an episode of Dexter, which I've never seen, but they're really into it. Dexter, you know, people really love that show, and I I don't love it. Have you seen because it? Because I've seen... I've never seen Like, the episode. first season. Okay. Oh, it's it's about a, a serial murder, killer. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's about a, a serial killer with morals. Yeah, and, that would know, be me. And, so-called morals. No, but <laughs> it's it just it's repugnant for a lot of reasons, mm-hmm. and it it does. I mean, people people fanboy and fangirl about it. It glorifies killing, and you just shouldn't. Like, even if Isn't it's this a true crime podcast, Peter. We are not glorifying killers <laughs> okay. on this podcast. No. We talk about the you know, unfortunate victims' demise and how fucked up the people who killed them are. There's no glorification here. And if there is, we need to get taken out back. Okay. So they're watching Dexter. They're eating dinner. uh, When there's a quiet point in the show and they hear a crash and someone running through their wall. Then they hear... Wait, somebody Kool-Aid manned through the fucking wall? No, not through the wall. They hear... They're in their room. They uh-huh. hear on the other side of the wall. Oh, oh, in okay, the other okay, apartment because okay. right. this is an apartment building, uh, running and then a crash. Then what sounds like a moan for help and a child's voice saying either "ow" or "no." Oh. Now, Marissa's hairs on the back of her neck stand up. They don't hear anything after that, and she just says the way that that voice sounded sounded like they really needed help. Like it freaked her out. So she pauses her TV show. She walks down to the hallway, knocks on the door. She doesn't hear anything, but then she hears somebody moving around in the apartment and then a very quiet click of a lock. And she says the moment she heard that click, it was like her heart was racing, like something was definitely wrong from what she's heard. So 
Marissa goes back into her apartment, tells her boyfriend what happened, and this bad feeling she has. About a minute later, she decides she should call 911. She's not sure what she heard. Uh, she's not sure if it's anything, but she just has that bad feeling. So at 5.08 p.m., she calls 911, and on the call, she restates what I just said. She's like, I'm not even sure if this is anything. Here's what I heard. Maybe just check it out. Maybe I'm overreacting, you know, the way that uh, a lot of us would be, I think. An officer arrives about six minutes later to the apartment and knocks on the door of the apartment where Marissa heard the noise and doesn't hear anything. He tries to figure out if anyone has a key to the apartment or a way to get in. Um, and they end up calling the 911 operator back trying to find out who owns the building. They get in touch with the landlord who just happens to be in the area, like with his kids or something. So he stops over with a key. This takes uh, about 15 minutes. So by 5.33 p.m., less than half an hour after the 911 call, they open the door with the landlord's key to the apartment and they find a 12-year-old boy unresponsive. Oh, shit. The officers could not identify the child's name, and Marissa says, you know, she, she knew a child lived there, but she wasn't for, very friendly with her neighbors. Um, you know, that was, uh, she knew it was a young, like a mom with two young kids, um, but, you know, they're at different stages of life. She's a college student, so they didn't really talk a lot. Um, but from other neighbors' information and the child's insurance card, they figure out that his mother was Tandy Cyrus. Now, from the documentary on this case, we hear a lot of the 911 calls because they're recorded and they're replayed. Um, and you hear the 911 operator in this case, once they identify that this child may be the son of Tandy Cyrus, she goes, Tandy Cyrus, isn't that John Jones' old girlfriend? And... Then you hear her talking to another, she, she's calling like the ER or something and trying to get more information. And again says, well, we at least know it's Tandy Cyrus's son. And another person says, Tandy Cyrus, where have I heard that name? Oh, that's John Jones' ex-girlfriend, isn't it? John Jones is the sheriff's deputy in Potsdam. So he's well known to everyone in town, in this small town. And Tandy Cyrus uh, used to date him. They're no longer together. So John Jones gets pulled in immediately because they can't find Tandy Cyrus and they at least think he'll have her phone number so that they can get her to the hospital where her son is being kept barely alive on life support. So he, John Jones, immediately helps the police locate Tandy and get her to the hospital to see her son, which is Garrett. When Garrett's other family members, including his grandmother, arrive and approach his body being kept alive by machines... Garrett Phillips coded and was pronounced dead at 7.18 p.m. He was 12 years old, and his cause of death was strangulation and suffocation. Investigators photographed the crime scene after Garrett's death, and they noticed that the blinds in the bedroom were faced outwards, like they were stuck in the outer frame of the window, as if someone had jumped out the window. And oh. this is a at least a second, maybe a third floor apartment. Oh, sure. Not sure. Um, so they guess that what Marissa Vogel heard when she knocked on the door was the killer still in the apartment, locked the door to conceal what he had done, he or she or they had done, and then escaped through the window. Now, the time period for this murder, as you'll see, becomes very, very important because it's a very narrow window. So at this point, we also find out there's another neighbor 
named Andrew, who's working on his car with his girlfriend, Shannon. They are working, like fixing a tire. It's directly below the window that the person would have jumped out of. That person could not have jumped out a window without these people seeing. And they're certain, based on some text records, uh, that they were working on the car from 4.50 p.m. to 5.20 p.m. Now, again, the number so far, what we have in terms of time period is uh, about two minutes before she called 911, so at 5.06-ish, Marisa Vogel hears that clatter and sound and a child yelling for help. Two minutes later, she calls 911. Six minutes later, an officer arrives at the door and doesn't hear anything. They call the landlord, and at 5.33, they finally open the door. So if Andrew and Shannon were fixing the car till 5.20, like they said, that leaves a 13-minute window for this person to escape before they open the door, which means the killer was still inside the apartment when the police arrived, which is scary. Yeah, I don't like that possibility. Yeah. Um, And as you'll hear more about this case, it's just baffling. Um, DNA and fingerprints were uh, taken from the scene and from Garrett's body. Um, There weren't a lot of like viable fingerprints, but they ran it through the system. Nobody who had previously been arrested. Um, There was a minuscule amount of DNA under his fingernails. Again, no match there. In the day after the murder, this case was going wild in this small community. The police were not releasing any information and rumors were just swirling. Some people said that it was friends of Garrett's that hurt him, fellow kids, uh, bullies, you know, a fight gone wrong, or even some teenage boy game called the knockout game, which I've never heard of, but I assume it's one of those things like, I'm going to punch you till you pass out. Well, no, it's... If I'm thinking of this correctly, the knockout game is where you choke each other until you pass out. Oh. Yeah. I've never heard of that. Did you hear about that when you were a teen? Uh, I I literally just said it, so yeah. Okay. I, I think I did. Okay. And I guess I mean, that's a boy thing. Well, no, it's... Uh, you were an innocent. Yeah, I was. <laughs> so you wouldn't really know. I was not an innocent. That's true. So I did know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So those were the rumors. I mean, um, nobody knew what had happened. They knew this was being investigated as a mysterious death, as a homicide. Um, but there was no information. So the public was going crazy with speculation. On October 25th at 8.30 a.m., uh, officers interviewed Tandy Cyrus, which is Garrett's mom. Her ex-boyfriend, John Jones, was there holding her hand. during the interview and we later find out that john jones uh took tandy home with him after garrett's death to take care of her now he apparently had another girlfriend at the time they had been broken up she had actually been seeing someone else between when she was seeing him so he really swoops in and you know supports her in that way but he is the sheriff's deputy and her ex and he's being let in the interview with her, which just seems a breach of protocol. Yeah, there's definitely a few things wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's it, it's a pretty big issue for someone to be present in an interview mm-hmm. like that because you don't know how this person is going to react uh, around their ex. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, maybe they 
wouldn't say a certain thing. I mean, there's a reason that you don't mm-hmm. interview people together. Right, and right. Because and I mean, she's not being interviewed as a suspect, but they're trying to get information from her. But like, but still. he's involved in law enforcement. He's buddies with the guy doing this interview who yeah, are taking charge of this no, investigation. No, you It's can't, just not no, good. It's not good. So at this initial interview, a suspect comes up again and again. Tandy's ex-boyfriend from her relationship after she was with John Jones. Um, and this guy's name was Oral Hillary, but he was called Nick, his middle name. Oral Hillary? Whoa, 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 whoa. Oral, Oral Hillary. Oral Hillary. That sounds that sounds like a shitty nickname that you know Okay, I know that, where you're going with this. Yeah, okay. We're not even gonna make the joke. You guys know <laughs> okay. the joke already. Um well he's uh he's Jamaican. So I don't know if that's a common name in Jamaica, but they call him Nick. Um he's the men's soccer coach at Clarkson University in town. Um, he has a daughter of his own. He dated Tandy uh, for a while. They fell for each other really hard. They lived together for a time with their, you know, their each of their children. Um, but Tandy's kids really did not like Nick. And this eventually caused enough of a rift to lead them to separate. And that was the reason that Tandy was living in the apartments. She had moved to the apartments after she separated with, uh, from Nick um, with her children. And John Jones actually helped her find that apartment. Hmm. Now, the officers who are taking over this investigation that I mentioned before are Gary Snell and Mark Murray. Mark Murray's a piece of work. Let me tell you, just imagine like the young guy in your high school that wants to be a cop and then like does it really hard and like poses in his cop outfit in front of his cop car. Like that's Mark Murray. I hate that. He just has an ego and an attitude. I mean, Gary Snell's not any better, but like Mark Murray specifically really grinded my gears. Eat your gun, Mark Murray. (laughs) So Gary Snell and Mark Murray were the ones who were interviewing Tandy with John Jones, who they know, because he's the sheriff's de- deputy, um, and they come up with, okay, your your most recent ex-boyfriend is Nick. Your kids didn't like him. That's a strong suspect. Um, now, soon after the murder, police interviewed Nick at his apartment and observed his reactions closely. Nick was very upset by this news uh, and didn't yet understand that he was under investigation. He reached out to Tandy uh, to offer support, you know, um, whatever you need, I'm here for you, but never heard back. And that's because Tandy had been instructed not to communicate with him while he was under investigation. Of course. Nick later reaches out to a friend of his who's an attorney, um, but just casually telling the friend what happened and the friend's, you know, ears go up when he hears that they made a trip to his apartment to give him the news. He's like, wait a second. They don't usually do death notifications for an ex-boyfriend. Right. Like you're on their radar. Watch your back. Now, just a little bit of social context here uh, to remember the North country of New York is pretty remote and rural. Uh, It's known as New York's prison country because there's a lot of prisons. So what, you know, one of the, people featured in this documentary um her name is i think it's natasha haverty she's a 
she was at the time a reporter for North Country Public Radio, and she covered this case. And she notes that this social context was very important because the area is rural, it's very white, and most people have a real reverence for law enforcement due to this. A lot of people have family who work in the prison system, and a lot of people would mainly have context for knowing people of color as inmates as the people who get arrested and were put behind bars. Um, St. Lawrence County today, where this took place, is 94% white. So Nick Hillary, as a Jamaican man, you know, stood out. However, he was highly educated. Uh, He's a college soccer coach. So he's also respected in the community. So there's like the tension of him being integrated into the community, but still his race standing out and obviously making him a clear suspect in this case right away. Well, yeah, I mean, he it's not just he's black, but he's not from here, too. Right. So after interviewing Nick in his home, Mark Murray goes to watch a soccer game that Nick was coaching that evening. And he comments that Nick had a significant limp in his left leg at the time. Now, this was part of the evidence they were looking for because whoever would jump out the window may have injured their leg. It's a large fall. It's onto rock and they found the rock was broken. So somebody landed hard in one spot. Oh, damn. But there's video footage of this coaching because, you know, they're always taking video so you can play it back. He's walking normally. Right. Mark Murray's there watching the footage saying, well, there he's walking normally. But then, you know, when he knew he's being filmed, but then when he wasn't being filmed, he was limping. But all the evidence that everyone else can see, he's walking normally. We only have Mark Murray's words. Oh, he's limping. Okay. So Mark Murray is a bitch ass, (laughs) but also you can't just unlimp. Like, if you hurt your leg that bad, you can't just fake it. No, and he's, like, striding. Like, he's he's going faster than, like, the soccer players back to the, like, the locker room. No, I have, like, mild sciatica, and sometimes I limp, and I can't help it. So it's, like, how how are you going to jump out a window, hurt your leg, and then just pretend you don't have a limp from that? Absolutely not. So Ian Fairley was the assistant soccer coach. So he worked very closely with Nick Hillary and knew him well. He was also questioned, especially because he provided Nick's alibi for the time of the murder. Now, Nick Hillary came to meet Ian at his home for a coach meeting. And at the time when he, you know, when when Nick walked into the home, Ian was on the phone on a phone call. So he could use his phone records to correctly identify the minute Nick came into his home because he said he was on hold. He was calling like a business and he had just dialed in. He was on hold for maybe a minute and then uh, Nick walks in. So they know he came in at 521 p.m. Now, keep in mind that timeline we're working with that the person who committed this murder did so around 506 and left before 533. Right. They pushed Ian Fairley very hard during questioning, but he was sure his coworker would not and could not commit this crime. And the solid alibi that was provided by the phone records was also pretty hard for them to work around. Now, Gary Snell and Mark Murray were not giving up on Nick Hillary. They asked him to come down to the police station for a more formal interview, and he obliged, saying he wanted to help. During questioning, he was, you know, holding back a little bit, knowing that he was being questioned, you know, since he spoke to that friend who gave him the tip off. Yeah. 
Um, and kind of in the middle of a question, all of a sudden they read him as Miranda rights oh. right before they ask like a question that if he answered it would have been, uh, um, implicating him. Nick knew what this meant. And he just calmly said, uh, you just read me my Miranda rights and I will be implementing my sixth amendment right to counsel. Um, and he just says there's video footage of this whole interrogation. He just says, I'll be implementing my Sixth Amendment right. And they're like, what is that? Do you even know what that is? What is that? And he's like, dudes, you know what the Sixth Amendment is. I'll be implementing my Sixth Amendment right. Wow. They are just harassing him. Like, you can see them using every police trick in the book to try and, like, needle him to, like, saying something. They ask him if he's ever watched CSI. Does he know what DNA is? And he says, no meaning I've never watched CSI. And Gary Snell is like, you don't know what DNA is? And he's like, no, I've just never watched CSI. I know what DNA is, of course. And then Gary Snell's like, well, you just lied to me then. You said you didn't know what DNA is. And it's like, you asked a two-part question. So they're like trying to scare him into thinking that they already have him on a DNA match. They're trying to confuse him. They're trying to say he's already a liar. Just like everything is very obvious what they're doing. Um. Nick still has his phone and he's trying to call his friend, uh, who's a lawyer. Uh, his name is Manny Tafari, who, as soon as he gets the call, he drives to Potsdam from New York city where he lives. Wow. Now that's a long drive. Um, but he's like immediately going to help Nick. And in the meantime, he calls another local lawyer, uh, to get his friend help. The police then confiscate his phone Mm -hmm. saying he had already, you know, contacted his counsel. He didn't need it anymore. They get a search warrant for Nick's person. And they have him in front of like five or six people strip down his shoes, his clothing, all the way down to his underwear. Wow. Take photos of his whole body just standing. You know, it's not like a a forensic lab standing in the middle of like a police interrogation room. Right. It's just like this like carpeted office in like a random like new build building. And then they have him take his underwear off and they photograph him completely nude, surrounded by all these men, just stark naked. For what? For what? Then they put him in a hazmat suit, uh, confiscate his clothes and send him home. Now this, what? everyone is like, this is clearly another intimidation and dehumanization tactic. This is like Abu Ghraib. Like this is... Why a hazmat suit? I guess that's what they had on hand. Uh. Ugh, I don't know. Unbelievable. But we later find out other suspects who were similarly questioned were only photographed on their feet and hands, fully clothed. Okay. Yeah. Not even their faces. Right. So this is clearly against him, you know, and, and the lawyer even says, it's not like we have evidence that the victim bit his penis. There's no reason to be looking at his naked body like what they were looking for was some evidence that he had hurt himself in the struggle and in the jump out the window right so they find like a little scar on his heel like a like a fresh and it's like he's a soccer coach yeah (laughs) like what do you think he uses his heel a lot or you know like not his heel his you know that bony part the bony part like this thing on the side of your outside of your ankle the the ankle bone yeah the ankle bone Thank you. I mean, he could have clipped himself with his own shoe. Right. There's no. Yeah. That's not a thing. Like the injury. It's like a little. 
and he says he's, he did it moving furniture and that's kind of what it looks like. like it's, but it definitely doesn't look like something you'd get from jumping out a window. Right. Like it's so weird. So they don't have enough of that moment to go after Nick Hillary anymore, but they really start on basically a public campaign to get the town to turn against him. That's not legal. <laughs> um, during this time, billboards and lawn signs like you know the campaign signs you stick into the lawn yeah come out with um justice for garrett with garrett phillips picture on it and some you know information about a reward forty thousand dollar reward for information now ian fairly who is nick's assistant coach moved to buffalo to coach there for a short period in may of 2012 so that's what a little more than six months after the murder right um there in Buffalo, Justice for Garrett lawn signs began cropping up. Now that's really far from Potsdam. Yes. That's it like is. all the way in western New York. So it was clear to him that this was targeting him for being there. Then he, you know, he does his coaching gig in Buffalo. He moves back to his parents' home in the southern tier in Owego, New York. Owego. And as he turns onto his parents' street, the same lawn signs, Uh-oh. justice for Garrett, justice for Garrett, justice for Garrett. Ian takes this to signify that across New York, people thought Nick Hillary was guilty and wanted Ian to help block him away. And wow. they were kind of taunting him with it. Now, soon after this, um, Gary Snell and Mark Murray confront Ian Fairley with some security footage that they had found from Potsdam High School from the afternoon of Garrett's murder. The footage shows Nick Hillary's car pull up to the high school. And then from another angle, about a few minutes, a few seconds later, you can see Garrett Phillips riding his skateboard away from school. Then the investigators ask Ian which way Nick would have turned out of the parking lot to go to his home. Ian said, well, he would have turned right. That would go to Nick's home. Then Snell and Murray show him Nick Hillary's car turning left, which was the direction that Garrett Phillips was riding his skateboard. At the same time, there was a huge campaign for a new district attorney. Um, The previous district attorney, Nicole Duvet, was blamed for not solving the case right away. And Mary Rain, a Republican who's running for DA, uh, makes it her mission and makes it her her cause during her election to say, if I am elected DA, I will solve the Garrett Phillips case. And this turned it even more into a political issue in the county. Now, the investigators, Snell and Murray, along with this uh, DA, Mary Rain, once she is elected, believe that the footage they find from the high school is clear evidence that Nick followed Garrett home that day and killed him. But they could not tell the car's license plate or who was driving the car. So it's really still circumstantial. Nick Hillary sued the Potsdam Police Department for defamation and mistreatment during their original questioning. And during this civil suit, the police counsel is finally able to question Nick about the security footage while he's on the stand. Because previously, they had not arrested him. They were never able to question him under oath. Now, because he brought the suit against them, uh, the police's representation is able to question him about the security footage. Now, his lawyer is, you know, objecting the whole time. What is the relevance to this case? Uh, but he answers. Using that evidence, they bring the case to a grand jury and Nick Hillary is arrested, maintaining his innocence while being taken away in handcuffs. In July 2014, he is released on bail. 
So in February of 2015, Nick Hillary was indicted a second time for Garrett's death. A new DA had processed the DNA again using a new processing system and concluded that there was a minuscule amount of DNA under Garrett Phillips' fingernails that likely belonged to Nick Hillary. Now, this was the kind of likely where the DNA says this is, you know, X times more likely to belong to Nick Hillary than anyone else. This was after the investigation had said twice on the record, including during Nick Hillary's civil suit, that there were no fingerprint or DNA matches to Nick Hillary in the case. So they had previously processed this DNA and tried to match it to Nick Hillary. Two other processing uh, systems did not match it to him. This was a new way to process the DNA. And this time they said, no, it, do- it is a match. However, the sample size was so small and was processed using an unapproved laboratory, so the judge throws the evidence out of court. Nick Hillary waives his right to a trial by jury and asks for a bench trial because everyone in the county had been poisoned against him over the, you know, the years of justice for Garrett, um, the DA's public airing of the case, um, just everyone having their own theories. He knew he wasn't going to get a fair trial by jury. And, you know, they decide later that this was very much the right call. They learn one of the jurors was good friends with Garrett Phillips' family. Wow. So it's like they just didn't even check. Wow. Um, Now, they're going to a bench trial, which means the judge decides without a jury uh, based on the evidence. So they still have to go through all of the presenting of their arguments and the witnesses. Now, they try to bring um, Andrew Andrew Carranza, who's the guy who was changing his tire, as a witness to corroborate the timeline um, to say that he didn't see anyone jump out the window. He was there from X time to X time. So the defense, uh, the te- detectives call him up. And this time he says yeah, I saw a black man in the window of that apartment. Now, he had been questioned two other times. He had original statement taken minutes after the event. And uh, his girlfriend, Shannon, was on TV interviews right after the event saying they didn't see anyone. But all of a sudden, Andrew's saying, I know I saw a black man and it was Nick Hillary coming out of that apartment. Sus. So Shannon knows what's up here. She's like, he's he knows that they just need one more thing to get him and he wants to give it to them to put away someone for this murder even though he knows he didn't see anyone um so they work that out um you know they bring shannon harris uh in as well um oh well i think actually they talked to shannon harris to 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 corroborate his story uh her original testimony and they just declined to interview andrew at all during the trial an unexpected piece of evidence was given to both the prosecution and defense in the middle of the trial. They're like, you know, bring the bring into judge's chambers and they're given a piece of paper that says a prison inmate gave testimony that he saw John Jones enter the apartment where Garrett Phillips lived 15 minutes before Garrett Phillips died. Both sides declined to call this witness to the stand. So they were unsure of its validity. Using the existing evidence, on September 28th, 2016, the judge gives his verdict, finding Nick Hillary not guilty of murder in the second degree, and he goes free. Um, During this trial, it was revealed that Mary Rain, the DA, hid exculpatory evidence from the defense, and she was barred from practicing law for two years. 
Just two years? Yeah, I know. She hid evidence she should be fucked for life. I mean, she may be just by reputation, but officially, I guess it was two years. Now, let's talk about Deputy John Jones, who has gotten off pretty easy in this case. It's fairly well known that he was an angry man and a violent man. It's also well known that he was very racist. Tandy Cyrus wrote a complaint in January 2011, 10 months before her son is murdered, that she feared for the safety of her children due to John Jones's aggressive and threatening behavior in the past. Now, John Jones sees this note later and says, Tandy didn't write this. She doesn't even know what these words mean. Underestimating her uh, ability uh, and intelligence. Right after the murder, John Jones called the 911 dispatcher, right, because he has the in as the sheriff's deputy, and asks who the officer was that responded to the scene. Why does he need to know that? Maybe so he can call him up and find out what he knows? Yeah, good old buddy, buddy. Yeah. Uh, John Jones did submit DNA evidence and submit to a search, but again, the photos of him were only of his hands and his feet fully clothed. His alibi for the time of the murder was that he was seen walking his dog around the time of the murder. And as another uh, attorney commented, people don't usually bring their dogs to commit a murder. Now, again, John Jones helped Tandy find the apartment after she moved out of Nick's place. And he stated in the documentary, I didn't do it so the boys would be closer to me, but just to help her out and make sure they were well taken care of. Sus. Mm -hmm. Very sus. So no one has been held accountable for the murder of Garrett Phillips. Nick Hillary was found not guilty. Who do you think did it? I don't know. Uh, I mean, I would always lean towards the angry cop to be the perpetrator of anything bad that happens. Um, I mean, what, what reason does Nick have to do any of this? Right. Like, why would he... That's what I always go back to, the motive. Because, yeah, their proposed motive was, like, he was upset at Garrett because Garrett's the one who said he didn't like him, and that's why Tandy broke up with him. Okay. But he has kids of his own. Like, I just don't think he would take out his violence against... Against that kid? Oh, one thing I didn't mention. Both John Jones and Nick Hillary had keys to this apartment from when they dated her. Yeah, my money's on John John Jones. He has more motive, which is he's mad that she left him for a black man because yep. he's a racist piece of shit. Right. And he's like, what does this guy have? Now, the second that Garrett's murdered, he pops up. Literally, the first thing's out of the mouth of that 911 operator. And if you listen to the way she says it, she's hesitating like... like she's almost implicating him right like wait a second isn't that john jones girlfriend like it's not just like familiarity it's like should i even say this right he benefits from killing garrett because he frames nick making him the bad guy the evil black man Mm -hmm. and he can then get close to tandy again by swooping in seconds after her son is killed and taking care of her, holding her hand through the interview. And he knows he's not going to get caught or questioned for any of it because he's the sheriff's deputy. He's buddies with the police department and they're going to protect him and they're not going to protect Nick Hillary. Nope. So I 100% think John Jones did it. I Walking your dog is not a great alibi. Like he's seen on um, some footage, I believe, and some other people saw him, but it's like... 
you could have just like put your dog somewhere, done it, and then kept walking. Like you're on foot already. So I don't know. I think he did it. I don't think he's ever going to get tried for it. Um, yeah, he probably did it. I just think it's a horrible case because it's both the murder of this child and then this man getting hung out to dry for, you know, five, six years and he has to leave town and his name is ruined. So everyone go watch Who Killed Garrett Phillips, directed by Liz Garbus. So you can tell us who you think killed Garrett Phillips by sending us an email. New York State of Crime at gmail.com. You can comment on our Instagram. New York State of Crime on Instagram. And you can visit our website. New York State of Crime Podcast.com. And basically all my sources for this case were from the documentary from HBO, Who Killed Garrett Phillips. We'll link to some additional sources on our website, and you can also see pictures and videos from the case. And this is New York State of Crime. Bye. Bye.